If you will take your Bibles and open them back up to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read this morning verses 5 through 7. And then I'm going to hop over and I'm going to read verses 18 down through the end of chapter 2. And so we can kind of get a good glimpse of the creation of the man and the creation of the woman and how God has brought them together. And uh, the, the sermon is actually just going to be on verses 24 and 25, but I want to build the context um, just to remind us of what we've studied so far. The so verses uh, 5 through 7 says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and there was no small plant of the field, or when no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the field, what He would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the Word of God. You may have a seat. So we've been studying God's design for men and women. And it is obvious that we've stayed within Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. We've only been looking at pre-fall designs, before sin entered the picture, and there's a reason for that. I want to explain that reason so you'll kind of know where we've been and where we're going, and you'll kind of get a a bigger idea of what's happening in this little series. Anytime that you want to get a good, what is called biblical, theological perspective of any topic, you want to approach it the way the Bible approaches it, so you don't hop from point to point back and forth all over the Bible. You, you go to it just as the Bible reveals it. Now, if we want to approach and have a, a biblical, a full biblical theology of the roles of man and woman, male and female, marriage, family, then you approach it the way the Bible reveals it. So you start at the beginning and you work your way to the end. Or if we wanted to look at just these roles within, say, the Gospel of John, we would start at John 1 and go through the end of the Gospel of John. You, you see, you go straight through the way the Bible has it. Now, 
we've started with um, creation. Most of you should know by now, hopefully, and if you don't know, write this down and begin to remember it. Whenever we talk about the gospel, the gospel as a, as a grand narrative, the big picture of the gospel, an easy way to remember it is in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or consummation. I like to stick with the R's. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Four words. That's, that's the grand theme of the gospel. God created it, and then we fell, and then He's restoring all things, and then ultimately, or he, He's redeeming all things, and ultimately everything will be restored. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, that's how we're looking at these roles. We're, we, we've started with creation, and then we're going to look at fall, and then we're going to look at redemption. Today, we're finishing up the creation aspect of this biblical grand narrative. And then next week, we're going to begin looking at the fall, and we'll see how these roles of male and female, man, woman, husband, wife, have been affected by the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. Now, we're going to talk about children at some point. I'm kind of going back and forth as to whether or not I want to do children right after the fall, or if I want to put it off to the very end. I haven't decided yet. But we're going to look at children, and then we'll move into redemption. Because once we know how the fall has affected men and how the fall has affected women, then we begin to look at what does the Bible command Christian men and Christian women in how we are to act now. And we'll answer that question. How are we expected to live as fallen men and fallen women who have been redeemed? When we read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it's obvious there are factors at play now that were not at play then. Sin has entered the picture, and so we're, we're on a whole new playing field um, in contrast to, to Adam and Eve. And so we have to approach it a little differently. They just had to live according to the design. We are by nature contrary to the design, and so we, we have to approach it a little differently. So that's what we're doing. Creation, fall, redemption. And then, of course, restoration will be in heaven um, where there is no marrying or giving in marriage, and so we'll all be brothers and sisters in Christ, and um, so we won't have to cover that as far as these particular roles. So we've talked about men, males. We've talked about women, females. Now we get to talk about what happens when a male and a female, a man and a woman, come together in marriage. But before we do that, we have to, like we've done in the weeks past, we have to Look at what culture is saying. What is the world teaching us about marriage? What are we going to hear from the news? What are we going to hear from the magazines? What are we going to hear from the sitcoms? What are we going to hear from even Christian people that we know who just haven't really taken the time to read or really believe what the Bible says about marriage? Several different perspectives. Some people... When they come to the idea of marriage, they say marriage should be put off as long as possible. Save it. Have all your fun now. Get it out of the way. If you're a Christian, get all of your real ministry out of the way. Go on your mission trips, do your camps, do your retreats, do all that stuff because once you get married, the, the shackles come on and you're chained down and you can't do that anymore. They view marriage as a restriction. So put it off. Don't, don't do it yet. 
Make sure that you have exhausted every outlet of entertainment and fun, and then when all the life's blood has been bled out of you and you're just a, a dried skull of a person, or a skeleton of a person, then, well, might as well find a wife now. That's how the culture looks at it. And so that's why you have people who are in their 30s and early 40s who are, are finally getting settled down. That's like a set, I'm settling down with someone. Other people view marriage as something, an outlet to solve their financial problems. Now these people would misunderstand the roles of husband and wife. And so they would say, well, it's, it's, it's the roles of the man and the woman to provide for the family. Therefore, hey, do the math. Two incomes is better than one. And I'm struggling, and you're struggling, so let's just get together and, hey, we're, we're making money here. This is, this is way easier. So they, they view marriage as just a, a fix of financial problems. On the other side of the spectrum, there are those who say, hey, the government is giving me money because I'm poor. If I marry you, you make too much money. So let's just live together and enjoy all the benefits of marriage, but let's not say we're married because then I lose all my benefits. They, they avoid marriage as a way to cheat the system. So there's two perspectives of that, as, as using marriage as a way or avoiding marriage to solve financial problems. Most people view marriage as a, as an, a, a, a joining or they might say an institution that is based on a mythical, mythological understanding of love. So we have this false Greco-Roman idea of love, this chubby angel flying around shooting people, that love is something that happens to you. The Eagles would say, I'm a victim of love. The REO Speedwagon would say, I can't fight this feeling anymore. I can't do anything about it. It just, it just happens to me, and I, just, it just, I'm, I can't do anything about it. So now that I've, I've tripped over and stumbled into this love, I've fallen in love, well, now we get married. Well, the problem with that view is, well, whenever I stumble out of this feeling... You get a divorce. That's why you have people who just say, well, we just, we're just not in love anymore. The feeling's just not, it's just not like it used to be. Another perspective is that any two people who are under the, the restraints of this mythological view of love should be able to get married. Hey, we feel this feeling. We, we've fallen in love. So anybody, any, any, if, if it's a man and a man, let them get married. Hey, we, we've fallen in love. If it's a woman and a woman, we've fallen in love. We can't help it. It just happened to us. We didn't plan this. It just happened. If it's a, an old man and a little kid, a pedophile, hey, he can't help it. It just happened to him. If maybe it's a, a middle-aged guy. He just happens to fall in love with chopped up corpses of girls that he sees in the parking lot at Walmart. Well, he can't help it. That's just what he likes. See, this doesn't make any sense if you draw it out to its logical conclusion. So they just say, well, anybody who feels this way should be able to get married. Not just people, though. Let's just, let's just say one person in, a, in an object. We've talked about this before. We have people who are married to the Eiffel Tower, people who are married to roller coasters. You've got a, a woman who's married to her cat now. Um, it's just, it, it, you, it never stops because it's all about, I feel this, therefore... Got to get married. Here's, here's, here's what we feel based on this false understanding of love. Now, the question that we want to answer today is, 
Is this what God had in mind when He took this rib and made it into this woman and brought her to the man? Is this what God had in mind? And I don't believe it is. So, the title of the sermon is God's Design for Marriage. And I've got four points that we're going to look at in these two verses. The institution of marriage, the pattern for marriage, the bond of marriage, and then the freedom of God honoring marriage. Institution of marriage, pattern for marriage, bond of marriage, and then the freedom of God honoring marriage. Look at verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now let's stop there. Here we see the institution of marriage. And what we learn here is this. Marriage is designed by God in light of God's creative work and design. Marriage is designed or instituted by God in light of God's creative work and design. The author here, Moses, begins verse 24 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with the word, therefore, which we know means in light of the facts or since what was just stated is true, and then you proceed, or because of the previous, then the following. So this should take us back to what we've learned over the past three weeks. We learned all people are created by God for God's glory and in God's image, or in God's image for God's glory. All people, man and woman, male and female, created in God's image for His glory. That mankind is God's idea created by God's initiative, by God's power. Our life is sustained by God. That even in procreation and multiplication where we play a part, even there we're still passive. God still has to create life. And then He also numbers our days. They're already set. So when it comes to life in general, it's God's. He has the copyright. He has the patent. It's all on Him, not us, when it comes to life and mankind. And then, God created the man first. And He created the man to work and to advance His race, to subdue and to rule over creation. Then He saw that it was not good that the man would be alone. And so He created the woman second. And He created her specifically for the man especially designed just for the man to come alongside him and to help him in the task that God had given to him. To the woman is man's perfectly fitted helper. Therefore, in light of all that, marriage is instituted. Or in other words, because this is the way God did it the first time, the institution of marriage now exists. Throughout human history. God did it one time. And that settles it. He set the institution up. And so we know from this. That marriage as an institution. Is also God's idea. Created by God. By God's power. By God's initiative. Sustained by God. The days of a marriage are numbered by God. All these things. All of the traits that humanity has. A marriage has. 
We have no rights over life to create it or to stop it. We have no rights over marriage to say it should or shouldn't be, or it should be like this and it shouldn't be like this. God created it. God designed it. It's God's idea. Marriage is God's idea. Now, some people would say, well, I don't know about that because the quotations end after verse 23 and then verse 24, Moses starts to talk. And so I think maybe Moses was the one who came up with this. And we know that later Moses gave them a certificate of divorce because this and this. And so maybe it was just Moses who came up with the institution of marriage. The problem with that is Matthew chapter 19. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus is speaking because the Pharisees have asked him, is it okay for a man to divorce a woman for any reason? And Jesus answers this. It says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said? So the creator said, quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So who wrote Genesis? Moses. Who said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? God. So not only is this a, a great proof for the inspiration of the Old Testament Scriptures as God breathed, but this is also reminding us that God said this. Moses wrote it. God said it. God said, therefore... Because of what I have designed, marriage is instituted. So marriage is God's idea, the institution. And because it's God's idea, then marriage as an institution also exists for God's purpose. God sets the function of marriage. He, he gets to set up the objectives of marriage. He says, this is what marriage is for. And in Ephesians 5.32, as I alluded to Last week, Paul, addressing the love of a husband for his wife, says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So God, under, or speaking through Paul, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, says it's about Christ and the church, marriage. God institutes it. And it's about marriage. Now you say, well, wait a second. There was no church like we know it with Adam and Eve. There was no Christ as we know Him with Adam and Eve. And you're right. There was no church like we know it. There was no Christ. But what we see from this, putting these two passages together, is the point of Ephesians. And a point made in Romans. And the point made in Galatians is that the church has been God's plan from the very beginning. The mystery hidden in the ages now revealed. Jews and Gentiles coming together in this bride that Jesus comes into human history to redeem. It's always been the plan. The church, this glorious bride. So when we understand marriage is God's idea, and marriage as an institution exists for God's purpose, then we realize that a lot of our reasons for getting, getting married are just wrong. They're just silly. If I were to ask most of you guys, or just go out on the street and ask people, why did you get married to your spouse? Or if you go to a couple who's engaged and say, why do you want to get married? You'd get about a lot of the same answers. Uh, because we love each other. Well, because he completes me. Or because I just want to spend the rest of my life with her. 
But are these the biblical reasons for getting married? If, God, if it's God's idea and God sets the purpose, then surely we should approach marriage under God's design and, and, and get married for the reasons God has laid out in His Word. So what are the biblical reasons for getting married? Well, we learned here that God created the woman for the man as a helper. So that's reason number one, help. I need some help. It's not good that man should be alone. I need help. Reason number two, procreation. God said be fruitful and multiply. Can't do that alone. Got to get married. Reason number three, holiness. What Paul say? It's better for you to marry than to burn with passion. It has been said, unless you're more godly than David, stronger than Samson, or wiser than Solomon, you better just get married. Because all three of those men fell into sexual sin. That's a strong pull for any two people. Help, procreation, holiness. You say, well, we're just not ready to have kids yet. Well, you're not ready to get married yet. These are the biblical reasons for getting married. And so when we, when we get married for biblical reasons, and we do it based on God's design, the intention is to display the love of Jesus Christ for His church. And, so, and what we learn here is it's not about us at all. It's not about us. It's about the church. It's not about feeling warm and fuzzy. It's not about waiting all of our lives for this day where we get to put on the dress and put on the tux. It's not, a, it's not about that. Now, is there love involved? Absolutely. Don't marry somebody you don't love. But it's not this fake love. It's biblical love. Biblical love is love like Jesus had for His church. Biblical love is emotional, but it leads to action. It leads to action on behalf of the object wherein you do whatever it takes to make sure that the object achieves their greatest good regardless of the cost to you. You'll do whatever it takes. If that means hanging on a cross to reconcile your bride to her God, you'll do it no matter the cost. That's the love that Jesus had for His church. That's how husbands are to love their wives. That's the institution of marriage. It's God's idea for God's purpose. We can't just come up and say, well, I think I want to get married. That's not how it happens. Marriage is instituted by God in light of God's creative work and God's design. Number two, the pattern for marriage. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. There's your pattern. Marriage in general is patterned after God's design in particular. Marriage in general, everybody, is patterned after God's design in particular here. He said, therefore, so we know that we're looking in light of the first man and the first woman. We look at them, they set the pattern for everybody. Then he says, a man and his wife. Those are general terms. Any man and his wife. That's the pattern. Every marriage, starting with this one, is to be patterned after this one. And that's why we're in Genesis 2, and we're not looking at, we're not modeling our marriages and studying Abraham and Hagar, or Judah 
or, or I mean, uh, Esau and, and Judith and Basimath, his first two Canaanite wives. Or Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah, his four wives. We're not looking at them and saying, here's how you pattern marriage. Because that's not the design. The design is here. So we look at the first pattern, the first design in particular, and then we draw out the pattern in general for every other marriage. So what's the pattern? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. A man, his wife. One man, one woman, equals a biblical marriage. It's simple. They should make a bumper sticker. A man and his wife. Singular. One man, one woman. Notice here, there's no room for homosexuality. There's no room for polygamy. There's no room for bestiality. There's no room for any of that. There's no no outside of this. This is where the debate starts. One man, one woman equals a marriage. If you need to support this verse, you go to Matthew 19 and say... Well, this is where Jesus went for His support. And He rose from the dead. So His opinion trumps your opinion. When you raise from the dead, then you can debate with Him. But until then, His opinion rules. And all of these other alities and igamies and all these other things, they are just rejections of God's design. They're saying, I want to be God. Sure, God is sort of wise, but he's not wise enough to know that I would like to marry a man or, or a woman would like to marry another woman. No, the, the pattern is clear. A man and his wife. It's not up for discussion. There, there's no need to sit down and have a conversation about it. Can we love people without approving of their sin? I hope so. Because I hope none of you approve of my sin, but I hope you still love me. I don't approve of my sin. I don't want to. And we shouldn't approve of anyone's sin. We should want to kill sin. Put it to death while still loving one another. One man, one woman. That's the pattern. And that constitutes a brand new family. A man shall leave his father and mother. So he's left his family. The woman, it is assumed, she's left her family. And they're holding fast to one another. We have a brand new family unit. One man, one woman. The man is no longer under the headship of his father anymore. And the woman, she's no longer under the headship of her father anymore. She now comes under the headship of her husband. He now takes the headship position of this new family and they create a brand new family unit. In in the Old Testament, this would have been a brand new voting unit. They would have been a, 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 a whole new family is instituted from one man and one woman. And this was God's pattern for building families, for multiplying, and for subduing the earth for His glory. So marriage in general is patterned after God's design in particular. One man, one woman, those two people constituting a brand new family. Number three, the bond of marriage. The bond of marriage. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. We learn here that the one flesh union within a marriage covenant 
creates a physical and spiritual unity, a spiritual bond between a man and a woman that cannot be broken. The one flesh union within a marriage covenant creates a physical and spiritual unity between a man and his wife that cannot be broken. They shall become one flesh. What does that mean? What, what, is, what constitutes a one flesh union? Signing a paper, putting a ring on, giving a key. What, what constitutes a one flesh union? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says this, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So, Paul says, using this verse as a support, whatever a man does with a prostitute, that constitutes a one flesh union. They become one body. Because as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. What he's saying is, sexual intercourse creates a one flesh union. Creates the bond. Now, does that mean a man is married to a prostitute? No. Does that mean, well, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, I guess we're married now, in God's eyes? No. We know that there is a legal factor that comes in later that has to be taken care of. Right here, it's Adam and it's Eve, and God is the officiant. There's no witnesses. There don't need to be any witnesses except for the, the lion and the deer and the peacock. Nobody else. So there's not a legal aspect here other than God, the king, ruling over his creation. But now we have the legal aspect of a biblical marriage. So that, that doesn't really, uh, that argument doesn't fly. Sexual intercourse constitutes a one flesh union. This is why abstinence is so important. It's not just, you know, well, well I'll sin. No, it's, it's the fact that every time you join together with a person in that way, you are becoming one flesh. And every time you go to another person, you're ripping each other apart spiritually and physically, taking pieces of people everywhere you go. That's why it's not cool to talk around my five-year-old, four-year-old about boyfriends and girlfriends. That's why it's not cool for high school kids to be talking about boyfriends and girlfriends. You're not old enough. You're not ready to even think on those levels because eventually it leads to kissing and then to the next and then to the next and then to the next. And, and, and you begin to do this, these, these physical relationships for people who are not ready. They're not married. And it's just nothing more than divorce practice in high school. These sins, physical, sexual sins, last for a lifetime. You take them with you everywhere you go. Because sexual intercourse creates a one flesh union. And what does Scripture teach about the one flesh union? Well, we go back to Matthew 19 where Jesus, continuing His response, says, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's how Jesus views marriage. God has joined it. Man cannot separate. Now, if you haven't been with us, or you don't forget, our, or you don't remember, our church holds to the permanence view of marriage, which means marriage is permanent. Simple title, simple explanation. You can go back to 
July 21st of 2013 where I preached through Matthew 5, 31 and 32 and I explained how that view works in light of the, um, the exception clause of except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Most people think that means, well, if they commit adultery, I can get a divorce. If you study the languages and you study Jewish culture, you find out that that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that in our culture today. Long story short, we don't do divorces. We don't do divorces. You could ask any of the, the couples or the spouses that have called me or met with me in this church and said, I think we're done. We're leaving or he's left or he's gone or we're done. My answer is, no, you're not. We don't do it. Sorry. It's not an option. Think of something else. I don't do that. Well, he cheated on me. Sorry, you made a covenant. Well, she left. Well, you're still married. Well, he's beaten me. Well, put him in jail. That's not a divorce. Marriage is permanent. When you make a covenant, you stick with it because Jesus said, one question, one answer, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they ask another question, did Moses not give a certificate of divorce and command, or command to give a certificate of divorce? And he goes on, and, and again, you can listen to that sermon where I explain the permanence view. So the two shall become one flesh, that cannot be broken. What does one flesh mean? That means unity in all things. This is marriage, unity in everything. Decisions, finances, future planning, spiritual matters, child rearing. You're one in everything. Now, what if there's a division? What if we don't agree? Well, God made me the head of the house and you're just going to do what I say and you're just... No, that's not what we do. If, if there's a disagreement, the husband loving his wife sits down and says, okay, we will sit here and we will talk until we agree. I will love you until we agree. And maybe he's wrong. We, we work to unity. Because there has to be unity. That's one flesh. You don't pull the headship card and say, well, God made me the leader. That's not what we do. So the one flesh union within a marriage covenant creates a physical and spiritual unity in all things between a man and his wife that cannot be broken. Again, you can, you can sign legal documents that say divorce all you want to, but there's something there that holds people. It, it stays. And that's the way God designed it to be. And then in verse 25, we see the last point, the freedom of God honoring marriage. He says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage according to God's design is free from any hint of humiliation. And that's even in the most intimate of settings. According to God's design and based around God's design, free from any hint whatsoever of humiliation. It says they were naked and they were not ashamed. Now we'll talk about the fall next week and in the weeks to come and we'll see that as soon as they saw that they were naked, what did they cover up? Their most intimate parts. First, first thing they covered up. In these most intimate connections between us, in a God-honoring marriage, marriage by God's design, there is no shame. We do it God's way, there's no shame. We do it man's way, there's always shame. Here's man's way. Women raised in an, in an environment of constantly comparing themselves to other women, celebrities, music artists, 
whatever, magazines and the like, forever idolizing the bodies of other women, always wishing that they met some sort of unspoken cultural standard in themselves. Men growing up gawking at television shows, commercials, movies, profiles on the internet, internet pornography, or just walking to, around Walmart or the mall the way people are dressed. Growing up with this, men also regularly bombarded with a cultural standard of attraction because women are constantly Googling at celebrities. Now you add to this constant coarse joking about sex, magazine articles and blogs about how to get to the next high and the next pleasure and the next good thing and how to do this the best and ten ways to do this. And we just have a culture of filth. We're raised in a culture of filth and so then we come to the marriage bed. And after being raised in a culture of filth, and I'm just assuming that we're talking about two Christian people who have remained abstinent. I'm not even going to acknowledge the fact that most people are not virgins when they, they get married. Assuming we have two virgins coming to the marriage bed raised in this culture of filth, they come to the marriage bed feeling inadequate, insufficient, substandard, and embarrassed in front of the one person God has designed them to be unashamed in front of. If you flip the lights off, babe. We're, unashamed, we're ashamed because we've been raised in this culture and Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not ashamed. No sin, no shame. And that's how God designed it to be. Your spouse is supposed to be your standard of attraction. Your your line, your, your, your plumb line, your chalk line is your spouse. How does she look? She don't look like you. What do you think about him? He's not you. That's our standard. Not magazines at Walmart. Now, when we read about this design, married or not married, we long for this. We want this kind of marriage, all of us. We long for this because we see the problems in our society. We see the problems in our marriage. We see the sin that flavors all of our lives that we've brought into our own marriages that, that makes things not so great. And we long for this because we see the beauty and the glory and the wisdom of God in His design and we say, I want that. But if we stop with just wanting a perfect marriage, We've missed the point. Now, should we strive for it? Yes. We should work for it. We're going to see in the weeks to come. Redemption. There are commands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Do these things. We should strive for it. Are we ever going to have a perfect marriage? No. Never. There are some things where we could say, well, you know, in the next life, we'll be perfect. Well, in the next life, there'll be no marriage. You'll never have a perfect marriage. But here's the thing, even if we could achieve a perfect marriage in this life, if we just stop there, again, we've missed the point. Because remember that marriage is not about us. Marriage is about Christ and His church. So if we build a perfect marriage and we have forgotten the goal, we've, we've fallen short. We've wasted our time. So these longings for a perfect marriage, they should transfer over to longings in us to see the bride of Christ, the church, 
purified and presented to our Lord on that day. That's what we're looking for. And I've told you before, when I go to weddings, everybody looks at the bride when the doors open. I like to look at the groom to see his eyes light up when he sees his bride. And I like to think about Jesus whenever the church comes into his presence, purified by the washing of the water with the word, all that he has done to sanctify her, purifying her with his blood, and he will see her perfect. It's about Christ and the church. So when we consider this institution, our minds should go to the covenant between the Father and the Son where the Father elected a people in eternity past and He said, I give these people to My Son before the foundation of the world. The Father elects a bride, a people. He gives them to the Son and in this, the institution of our salvation is founded in the eternal covenant of redemption. And then Jesus comes along and He says, this is the will of Him who sent Me, that of all He has given Me, I will lose none, but raise it up on the last day. And then we, we look at this pattern, we consider this perfect pattern that we will never achieve. And we have to remember that no matter what false religion arises, no matter what the false teacher says, or, or whether the, the world comes against us, our faith says there is one bride, and there is one groom. One church, one Savior. This is the pattern. There is no other Savior. No other groom has laid down His life for this bride. That's the pattern. One bride, one bridegroom. When we look at this unity and this bond, and we say, man, I wish I had that in my marriage. And we try to, in our own marriages, fight and battle against the attacks of the devil against the, the influence of culture, against our own flesh in our marriages. We need to understand, we can't look at ourselves and say, well, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to make this right. I'm going to build this unity. It can't happen. We have to look to Christ. And we look to Jesus who took on human flesh, was incarnate as a man. He went all the way to the cross for His bride who would not only be adulterous, she was His enemy. And He laid down His life for a bride who was His enemy. We who were not His people, He is called sons of God. We, or He has been found by we who were not seeking Him. He has shown Himself to us who did not ask for Him. And many of us are ashamed of the sins that we have. We're saddened by the shame that we carry into our marriages. More so than that, we should be ashamed of the sin that separates us from a holy God. That's worse. Not that we sin before our spouse, but that we sin before God. But even in that, if we're Christians, remember, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. These sins have been nailed to the cross. Our groom has already suffered those sins. They're dismissed. They're out of court. They're done. We're, we're free from this bondage. And so now we boldly approach the throne of grace as a bride who's been redeemed, shameless, clothed in the perfect righteousness of our King. Marriage is not about us. Never has been. Never will be. If we stop at us, we failed to see the glory of the Savior and what He's done for us, and we failed to see the wisdom of God in this design. 
that He would institute this thing at creation. And then thousands of years later say, oh yeah, that's about Christ and the church. And then thousands of years later get a group of people in a room and say, hey, don't forget, it's about Christ and the church. God is doing this. So we can't, we can't forget that. We move into redemption. And, or we look at the fall and then we move into redemption. If we forget it's about Christ and the church, we forget what God has done in Christ for the church, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, that means nothing if we don't understand what Jesus has done for His bride. So we need to move past marriage in our marriages. Work on the marriage. Ask God to fill you with the Spirit. He will work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do that. But remember, I'm doing this to display the Gospel. If you do not know Jesus, come in repentance and faith. Trust in His finished work. He's lived. He's died. He's alive. He was alive yesterday. He'll be alive tomorrow. And He's alive today. Jesus is the only way of salvation to the Father. So we, we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, our bridegroom. And we are welcomed into this church, this bride, this, this household of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your wisdom and Your power. Lord, I pray that You would help us to see the glory of marriage. Not just in the fact that You would bring opposites together on earth and, and, and teach us how to get along, but, but that you would, you would send a perfect sinless Savior to die for an adulterous, idolatrous bride and, and redeem her back to yourself. Your wisdom is, is beyond our comprehension, Lord, and we thank you that you have included us in this plan, that we, we get to, to be in so many words, the byproduct of your relationship with your Son. You're so gracious. And we thank you, Lord. Bless us for the rest of this day. Help us to honor you, to remember you, and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.